Welcome to the International Museum of Dance podcast, Mod Pod, where we discuss why we dance. I'm your host, Jamie Ray Wright. Today, we're going to look outside of Western dance to international dance traditions. The dance that we perform in the West is often greatly influenced by traditional dance practices from around the world and vice versa. The subject is vast, but we will examine one small part. Please welcome Sneha Chakrakar. Thank you for being with us today, Sneha. Hi, Jamie. Thank you for having me. One of the things I always do with every person I've talked to is I try to find out where the impetus for dance came from, what brought them to dance, or how did dance find them? Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Uh, sure. So I was born in New Delhi, India. That's where I grew up. And New Delhi is the capital city of India. Um, it's also the one of the cultural capitals of, of the country. There's a lot of music, dance, theater, alongside politics um, that you have uh, immediate exposure to if you're living in that city. And I also came from a family of artists. My mother uh, is a classical vocalist, um, Indian classical music. Uh, and my father is a celebrated poet. He writes hin in Hindi and he writes humor and satire. And they were both, they're both um, retired Hindi professors. So there was a lot of culture at home. And I started learning music from my mother at a really early age. However, there was nobody I knew in the family that danced. But I, as a child, you know, children love to dance. And my mother probably saw uh, that interest in me. And so she found me a teacher in the neighborhood. And that's how it all started. So uh, it's a studio or a private teacher? How, how did that? So I, uh, so there are many, many different classical forms of dance in India. There are eight classical forms and they all come from different regions and represent the culture, poetry, music, um, aesthetics um, of the region that they come from. I grew up in the north. Uh, New Delhi is in the northern part of India. And the dance form that comes from the north is called Kathak. So my, initially at a very young age, I was probably five years old when I started learning Kathak from a very dear family friends who were renowned Kathak dancers. So they started teaching me a little bit, but I was too young and, you know, classical dance forms require a very strict discipline and a certain amount of intelligence. <laughs> probably I didn't have that at uh, age five. So I stopped learning Kathak, but Later, when I was maybe about nine years old, uh, we had a teacher in the neighborhood. She was our neighbor and she uh, had just passed out of a of a school, a Bharatanatyam school, which is now a dance from, from the south of India. And she was starting classes in the neighborhood. So it was a private, you know, um, you know, after school, I would go for, for those classes twice or thrice a week to in her house. And that's how my journey into Bharatanatyam started when I was nine years old. What, what is that style again? Bharatanatyam. So let me spell that for you. B-H-A-R-A-T-A-N-A-T-Y-A-M. Bharatanatyam. Oh. And how how is that, what's characterized as that style? So it... Uh, 
it's considered to be about 2000 years old and um, it originated in the temples of south india in a state called tamil nadu and it was practiced and nurtured by a community of women who were dedicated to the temples they they lived in the temples and they um, had a very different life from other women especially in olden times where they were not attached to any any family or any man or they've never got socially they never tied uh, um, the knot with a man but they tied the knot with the deity with the lord of the temple so they were ritualistically married to the temple deity and they uh, lived in the temples and studied scriptures and studied music and dance and they performed for the lord um as a form of worship and as a as a, as a way to entertain the lords so that's how this dance form originated in the temples and then it has a very very long and also very problematic history where you know it moved out of the temples it went into the courts of people it also was practiced in uh, as an art with patrons and you know women performed them uh, the the form for in people's houses then the british came to india they colonized india and lots of changes happened and if you want we can get into the history of the form now or maybe a little bit later but well, yeah it's a, let's dive in let's say that again let's let's dive in why not okay so so when the british came india so i don't know if you're aware but india has this caste system where the society is hierarchically arranged based on their occupation so you and it's a it's an ascribed form of system where you are born into a particular caste you cannot change it you don't have a choice in the matter so the family that you're born is is what your caste would be for life and, and this is a, a very extremely problematic system because there's a lot of exploitation and oppression of lower castes by upper castes and historically uh it has existed and continues to exist in in the indian subcontinent so uh, when the british arrived they brought with them their uh, you know victorian morality uh which was uh, more conservative than uh, the things that were practiced in india were very like fluid there's um you know there's this great uh, Uh, transition between things that are considered sacred and things that might be considered profane but they both exist side by side you know where these women who practice these dance forms this bharatanatyam as we know it today the dance form in the temples they were also seen as prostitutes by some other people because they were not you know they didn't have conservative lives where you know they were married to a man had children they had children out of the wedlock they had their own patrons they lived very you know sexually free lives which was not palatable to upper caste you know conservative society especially informed by the british morality so they you know people started talking about this and also not to deny that uh, there was probably a lot of exploitation of these women as well by temple priests they were dedicated uh, when they were maybe little girls and they didn't have a choice they were brought into this profession without really their own consent at many times so both sides of the the uh, the argument are valid where maybe there was a lot of exploitation and on the other hand there was also this beautiful art that was being nurtured and practiced and propagated by this community um eventually this community also became a part of the caste system and was seen as hereditary artists uh, 
coming from uh, a lower caste background. So all of that came into play. So there was a lot of uh, hue and cry about it. Uh, when the British finally left India in you know early 1900s, they started this movement, the anti-Notch movement. This form of dance was called Notch, which was a derogatory term uh, for dance. Women, you know, prostitutes dancing, pretty much like cabaret. So they, uh, this anti-Notch movement, you know, was popular. They actually ended up banning dancing in temples. And they banned this community of women from performing ever in temples. If they were found performing in temples, they would be penalized. They would have to pay a fine or they would even be taken to jail for it. So this entire community of uh, women who, you know, all they knew was to dance, to sing, to recite poetry. They had no other skills. They went, they had to go underground. They were denied their own dance form. At the same time, the upper caste, some, you know, enlightened people, you know, discovered that if we stop these women from dancing, we will also lose out on this dance form. So what they started doing is they started learning the dance from, from these, you know, men and women from these communities. And so there was cultural appropriation that took place where the upper caste, Brahmin, men and women, started learning this dance form while the community who actually uh, created, nurtured and propagated this dance form for thousands of years was denied that opportunity, was that their livelihood, uh, their dignity was taken away from them. But, but it was reappropriated. So this, the entire um, dance form was restructured in a manner that was considered more pious. So it was more dedicated to the gods now they took out the sensual aspects because remember um these women who were dancing in the temples were dancing for their you know ritual ritualistic husbands the gods so there was a lot of sensual content and um, erotic content in their dance so uh, they kind of sanitized the dance and made it more devotional and gave it a, a more institutionalized structure and it became democratic it opened its doors to anybody and everybody who wanted to watch it learn it perform it and that's how it came to me in the north so yeah there's a lot of and that community uh, really shrunk uh, the original community of hereditary artists uh, there are only a few of them now who openly practice and talk about this it was when I was learning this dance as a child these were not even conversations about caste or about the appropriation of dance and how it was banned the history was told to us in a very different in a very linear manner and I never was aware of all the problems that you know the the community faced which I only learned when I was much older and a student of sociology and got interested in learning about dance in a sociological manner. So, yeah, but now times are different and we talk more openly about things that were not necessarily considered important enough to discuss in, you know, two decades, two decades ago. So this, this style of dance, it was performed in temple, it was mm -hmm. performed for... Services, ceremonies, I'm not sure the right term. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, during like festivals or maybe sometimes some pieces were performed on a daily basis as a part of ritual. Sometimes the deity is taken out of the temples and taken on 
you know, around the village. And then the dancers, you know, kind of accompany with the with the deity. So yeah, on different occasions. And when there were kings, uh, kings were big patrons of temples and of, of these uh, women who were called Devadasis, literally meaning uh, servants of gods, the women who danced. So they also started, you know, maintaining Devadasis in the courts. And when they were in the courts, they were called Rajadasis. Raj means uh, uh, the king or royalty. And Dasi means um, servant, so kind of servants of the of the king. And they started performing for the, uh, the kings like they would perform for the gods in the temples. And then they would also go out and have patrons. So, you know, at a wedding of a, a really uh, important person in, in, in the town, they would be invited to perform at the wedding or, you know, different occasions like that so it opened it was there was no there's no linear history history was happening in so many ways uh, and the practice was taking place in you know in multiple manners so there's no one way of looking at it is this the trajectory of the other forms of dance in india as well no not necessarily every dance form has its own very unique history based on um how they originated and how um, they commu- they interacted with wider society. So this history is very specific to my form of dance, which is Bharatanatyam, and also kind of similar to another form from a, a nearby region in the south called Kuchipudi. Um, but yeah, if other da- other dance forms have their own other history. But this is the uh, dance form that really took hold of you. Uh, what attracted it to you? Was it the cultural aspect? Was it the uh, the stylization of the uh, movement? So you know, as a child, you don't. It's 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 hard to pinpoint what what you like and why you like it. But it became. I think I was uh, glued to the discipline of it um, initially as a child. Like you go to school, and um, you know you have to go to school. You can't think of you know not going to school, school dropping out. Uh, especially not in India, this became a part of my everyday life. Like I go to school and then I go to dance class. This is something that you do. Initially, also, there's a love-hate relationship because it's a difficult dance form. It takes a while. It's like, you know, ballet, you have to really train your body. Similarly, in Bharatanatyam, there's a very intensive training of the body, which is, it's there's no instant gratification. You know, you don't, it takes months and months and years of practicing to get something right the ultimate aim is to be able to perform your body for your body to be able to perform what your mind is seeing and that transition you know to get to that point where your body listens to your brain without you know without much time or effort is takes a long time and once you reach that point where uh, your body becomes effortless in translating your ideas in the mind, that's when you feel that exhilaration of uh, achievement, of gratification. So, But that journey is really hard and long. So as a child, I think I was attracted to that goal of getting to that point where I'm able to do things that I'm imagining to do. Um, it's also a language. It's uh, it's like, you know, learning a new language. Uh, so m- all of Indian classical dance forms are narrative dance forms. They're story- storytelling dance forms. 
And because most of the dance forms originated in Hindu temples, the stories that we tell are mythological, are from Hindu mythology. So I'm, I grew up in a very non-religious household. So I was never attracted to the, the mythological aspect or the religious aspect of the dance, but I was very into the communicative aspect of dance. The fact that you can use your body as a language to communicate ideas. And it's so beautiful and aesthetic and there's poetry involved. So Indian classical dances are not just a body-body thing. It's that they, they involve an understanding of, of course, mythology, religion, poetry, literature, architecture, music. So the music, we have two, essentially two main forms of classical music in India. One is the North Indian style of music and the, the other is a Carnatic music, which is the South Indian style of music. So uh, to be able to dance, you have to have a very deep understanding of music as well. And we have very complex rhythms in our music system. So it's a, it's a very holistic discipline. Um, it requires uh, a lot of immersion, not just um, physically, but emotionally, intellectually as well and spiritually it requires a understanding of yoga and biomechanics so it's it's it just not, it's not one thing that took grip of me it's all of that that the the demand the challenge of it all was very exciting to me but it sounds like it's technically demanding is it also physically demanding it is it's yeah. extremely physically demanding our main posture is uh I think oh, it's similar to a plie. It's a half squat position. Mm. Uh, so like you're making like a rhombus with your legs. Uh, and then you dance most of your dance in that position, sitting down, half squatting. So it requires a lot of you know muscle power and stamina. And it's extremely complex as well in terms of the uh, rhythm cycles and you know just how we play with the rhythm. Yeah, you know, as a musician myself, one of the things I marvel at uh, with South Asian and particularly Indian music is that you use time signatures that are unheard of in Western music. Yeah, it, there's a lot of math involved. Yeah, a lot of math. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you said you, uh, you know, music was a part of your your family growing up. Do you play a musical instrument yourself? I used to play a little bit of guitar, but I I'm, I, I won't boast about it. Um, no. So I, I used to train in singing mostly. And uh, we play the Tanpura, which is like the scale. And I used to play a little bit of a, a harmonium uh, just to, you know, accompany or learn the notes, but um, I'm not proficient at it uh, in any way. Uh, so is the music, I guess music is greatly integrated into the dance style itself, though. It is, yes. You mentioned that this, the rich, this rich history that goes back 2,000 years. Are there, you know, standard dances that are uh, done, standard choreography that's done? Or is it more improvisational or is it uh, choreographed? It's a mix of both. So our compositions that are traditional, that were written maybe, you know, three, four, five hundred years ago uh, that are still performed. Um, so there's a lot more improvisation in our style of music and dance uh, where um, every guru or every composer and choreographer 
take liberty and bring in their own knowledge, their own intuition, their own uh, talent into how they choreograph or, you know, you, we, uh, so my guru, uh, my guru is Geeta Chandran, uh, who lives in Delhi and uh, runs um, an organization called Natya Vriksha, where she has a dance company and she uh, is at any point, given point in time has about a hundred students learning under her. So she, she would imagine things based on her own training, her own interest and uh, her own capabilities. And uh, I would learn the choreography, but the aim, and while she's teaching me the choreography, she's constantly telling me to make the choreography my own. So the aim is to, it's not like one size fits all. All of our bodies are different. Certain things look good on my body, which don't look good on other bodies. So she's also, as a teacher, she's also constantly uh, creating and choreographing based on what works for each body. It is essentially a solo dance form. So, and it's a narrative dance form. And so it's very challenging because you are, when you're telling a story, there are multiple characters. So you're constantly changing characters in the story as um, as dancer narrator. So um, each your unique body, your unique placing in space and time is very important to the dance form. And there's nothing fixed really. Yet, of course, in today's day and age, uh, when we have to dance to recorded music many times, uh, then. Uh, the music, the score is fixed, and yet you can keep creating and recreating choreography as you, you know, as you grow older. Now, you know your agility, your level of agility changes. Your, you know, you, the complexity of in the way you think and express changes. So, yeah, there's a lot of scope for improvisation. But certain parts of the choreography are always kind of fixed, which are the rhythmic uh, patterns that are fixed and you fix choreography to that. And the narrative aspect, when you're telling the story, that is more improvisational. That sounds a lot like jazz, where yeah, there, are, it is. there, there are standard yeah. songs, every, you know, that everyone knows in jazz, but everyone who performs that song performs it differently. Exactly right. So the same composition uh, performed by 10 different dancers would be 10 different choreographies, essentially. And you say this is a solo form in, in performance, huh? It is essentially a solo form, but in the last uh, 50, 60 years, it's um, uh, inspired by the West. We have now a lot of group work happening because um, that that's uh, uh, that's what people want to see. It's, it's more spectacular. It's like amazing to see lots of bodies on stage, you know, juxtaposed. Um, so yeah, group work is big now, but essentially when we are trained in the dance form, the training is uh, for us to become solo artists. So I would imagine that uh, since this is a storytelling, a narrative uh, dance form, that it gives you a lot of room to write new stories that actually talk about what is going on in today's world. Um, that's true. It's a, it's, as I said, it's a language. Once you learn the language, you can write any story you want. But every language has its limitation as well. So if there are new concepts and new ideas, you have to create new vocabulary at times as well. And because this dance form developed in the temples, originated to tell stories of gods and goddesses, our vocabulary is pretty tied to those kind of gestures, you know, uh, that 
tell stories of, from mythology. So sometimes it is challenging to tell stories that are mundane, that are out of the spiritual, religious, you know, context. So I think you can tell any story, but it depends on the ability of the dancer, their, their ability to understand the contexts and to present them in the same vocabulary. So I danced in with the Nativiksha Dance Company, my guru's dance company, and uh, I was very, I've been very fortunate to learn, learn under this amazing performer and teacher who is very in tune with her social environment as well. And she has always wanted to experiment and bring in new vocabularies or try to tell stories that are more relevant to us right now. So I got a really good sense, like a good, strong training under her of how to incorporate newer material in dance, where we, we told stories about even, you know, drug addiction or women's empowerment um, and using how to use mythology to tell new stories. I was trying to develop a work a few years ago on uh, the environmental degradation, pollution, because India, you know, living in New Delhi, that's one thing that's constantly, uh, that challenges you every day. Breathing every day is like equivalent to smoking 20 cigarettes. So how do you, why should I be talking about gods and goddesses when I have bigger demons to kill right now in, in my life? So I try to incorporate that in a production uh, using mythology. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you can decontextualize the dance, but you have to be, you have to do it very intelligently and very empathetically. Otherwise, it just loses meaning and becomes, you know, just actions in space. That certainly is the uh, difficulty of being able to uh, advocate with dance as opposed yeah. to tell a linear once upon a time kind of story. Yeah. How, how did you bring your art form to the United States? You said you were born in Delhi. Uh, yes, I was born in Delhi and um, lived there pretty much all my life, except for one year uh, where I went to Australia to do a second master's in theater. And then I met um, this wonderful gentleman from uh, the United States who was visiting uh, India and we fell in love and I and he moved to India and uh, we lived there for 10 years and then we had a baby and that's when we started thinking what kind of a life we wanted and this was also in the midst of COVID um, and uh, it was really bad in India the Delta wave so we came to the U.S. Uh, just for a few months to see how it would be and whether we like it here. And we came to Santa Fe because my husband works in the film industry and we have a big thriving film industry here in Santa Fe in New Mexico. And uh, we came here to just try it out for five or six months and then we never left. <laughs> so that's how I came here. And I've also been um, a teacher, so student and teacher of sociology pretty much my adult life. I used to teach at the University of Delhi. So I've got a job here. I teach uh, at the Northern New Mexico College. I teach sociology and criminal justice. Um, so I have these two parallel passions going side by side. And it's really nice to be able to share 
my dance form here in New Mexico with uh, newer audiences and bring this, you know, thing which has roots in 2000 years of history to uh, to a place which is also historically so important in North America. Well, sadly, I've not been to Mexico in many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a large South Asian community in Santa Fe? No. <laughs> uh surprisingly no i mean everywhere you go you you find lots of indian people but uh surprisingly in south in santa fe there are a few of us there are maybe a lot more in albuquerque and then some in los alamos uh working at the labs um but santa fe i happen to be the only bharatanatyam dancer so i'm fairly unique to the place and how are folks uh taking to your art form there I'm getting really awesome opportunities, I have to say, and International Museum of Dance has been really supportive of my work here. I've made lots of friends in the dance world here and um, gotten some really uh, fun opportunities to be part of different kinds of festivals. And to, to um, I mean, I've, as I mentioned, I had a baby recently and uh, I'm still getting back into it slowly at my own pace uh, in a new country with a full-time job. So it's been really nice because I've been able to do it on my own terms and slowly not be rushed. I think I would have had a different trajectory had I been in New Delhi because I would, because I had this uh, really flourishing practice and this company that I was a part of, I would have been dancing a lot more if I were in India. But here I've taken my time. And, uh, you know, learn to live in a new country, uh, in a new environment. And it's it's hard here because we are at a, such a high elevation. So um, to build that stamina, build your lungs to, to be able to dance again takes a while. So I'm really enjoying that process and learning about myself more and reconnecting. And I have so much material that I want to revisit and explore again. So um, I'm enjoying that process and getting these opportunities uh, to share my art. So are you finding that people want to learn this dance from, from you? Are yes. You- I think I get lots of queries. I haven't yet begun teaching. Uh, and I tell myself I'm going to start doing that soon. I've just had a very, very busy, you know, schedule with a full-time job. But uh, yeah, that's that's on the card. This year is the year I will start my own classes. I have a beautiful home studio. And uh, there have been a lot of queries, especially from uh, you know adults who um, who want to learn more about other cultures and want to immerse themselves more there's a, a lot of i see a lot of love for india in santa fe I, I meet a lot of people who've been to india and practice yoga or know a lot about culture in india in general so i think i'll have a i'll have a good community of people wanting to learn the form here well you've given us a very big uh you know, look at one small aspect of the history of uh, of India through the history of this particular dance. I mean, India is such a huge place. I understand there are many languages spoken there. Mm-hmm. Thousands. So it, it's a it it must be very interesting to be able to share that with a community uh, that is so art oriented as those folks are in uh, in New Mexico. It is, yeah. It's I, I feel I feel privileged here to have that opportunity to share something that people haven't seen before. It's it's really gratifying. 
in in doing this, where where do you draw the line between you know appreciation and a, a fetishizing of the of the art form and the culture or the of stereotypes? Well, it depends on how you present it. I like to talk a lot because also I'm a I'm a professor, right? So I I give a lot of context to what I'm doing, so they can really connect at a more meaningful level rather than see it as a spectacle or fetishize. So I, there's, and I also talk about the problematic aspects of the practice uh, to make it more, you know, uh, to not put it at a pedestal and to say this is spiritual. I mean, all of that is true as well, but it is, it is a dance form practiced by human beings and there have been a lot of things done wrongly in, in history. So I also talk about that. And then I come from a very different background, which is, I mean, it almost, uh, it's hard to explain that being an atheist myself, how do I engage, immerse myself in in a dance form that is so religious in its content? So I talk about all of these things a lot, and that probably helps people to connect with the form better and connect with me as an artist uh, better than to just see me as a spectacle coming from, you know, and outlandish some coming from somewhere else. That certainly is a danger sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh it's you mentioned, you know, the religious aspect of this and how you engage, you know, it's just like a, maybe our engage of a Greek or Roman mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters, the gods involved in this dance form, are they are they hmm. Well, you know, in Greek and, and Roman mythology, the, the gods are, are surrogate humans. They just have a lot more power. Hmm. So they have the same kinds of foibles that individuals would have uh, hmm. in the world, but they are they're they just can throw lightning bolts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So there's all of it. The practice of Hindu religion. And especially in the context of Sanatan Dharma, which was uh, maybe like five, six hundred years ago, uh, the religion became opened up um, in a more democratic way. And the practice became more accessible because, as I've mentioned earlier, the caste system was designed in a manner where uh, access to God was reserved for the upper caste, which was the Brahmin, the priests. And they dictated how other people can would engage with God. They were the connection in between. But uh, in in the Bhakti period of six five six hundred years ago, people started creating ways of practice of religion, which is which was more accessible to everyone. And so, song and dance became very immediate mediums of worship, or you know, communal worship where people would congregate and sing, you know, like gospel, uh, would sing together uh, these devotional songs um, and feel that spiritual high, similarly with dance. So um, the gods in Indian mythology are very interesting. They're very colorful. So they are, you know, throwing lightning bolts also. They are killing demons and having these epic wars. But at the same time, the religion allows their devotee to connect with their God in the way they want. You can treat God as your friend, as your neighbor, as your lover. 
as your husband, as your family, as even your enemy at times. You can fight with God. You can you can challenge him as well. So it's a very open way of practice, actually. It, it's not, nothing is really blasphemous. And so you have this really amazing, Im immense scope for improvisation and imagination. So there are pieces that we do that are where there's a heroine who's angry with God because God had promised her that he would show up at her house for a night of union. And he doesn't show up. And he comes late. He comes in the morning hours. And, she, and of course, he's been with another woman. So she's fighting with him like a you know lover's quarrel. That's allowed. And so they're very interesting contexts that we have in dance. Then a lot of the time, uh, the conversation is between the heroine and her friend. She's asking her friend to go fetch the Lord because it's time for them to make love. Or, you know, there's very, very interesting things. Or there's purely devotional, you know, talking about the the, the magnificence of, of the God, of all their aspects, of their attributes. So um, it's a very, very colorful uh, religion. And the way it's practiced is very artistic, aesthetic, poetic. Um, so as I said, it's a combination of poetry, combination of religious texts, of music and um, of um, just general aesthetics of, of the culture. Well, in sharing this with an American audience, is it something that they are able to, to grasp, that they're able to catch hold of? Human emotions, because everything is about emotions. Mm -hmm. um, even the stories, they may be very like uh, grand or imaginative or out of the ordinary. But at the heart of it is your emotion, your emotion of love, your emotion of devotion, your emotion of, you know, uh, of anger or all of that. At, at the base of everything is what we call the Navarasa, the nine emotions. And all nine emotions come into play. And no matter where you live in the world, we all can see some similarity in the way we, we express ideas and emotions in society. Well, it may be too early to ask this in your practice, but are you finding that other dance forms, either other Indian dance forms or other uh, Western dance forms are finding their way into your practice? Oh, yes. Always has been. I mean, just the nature of, and it's all, see, dances, they're always evolving and they change with time. They change, they're constantly sort of communicating with the, the intellectual, cognitive, aesthetic needs of the society that they are being practiced in. So the dance that we see today is certainly not the dance that was practiced 2,000 years ago and is not even the dance that was practiced maybe 100 years ago. It's changing uh, with the needs. So now our performative spaces are big auditoriums. This is a solo dance form. It evolved as a solo dance form, which is storytelling, very emotive. We use our face a lot. We use the body a lot. And um, if you're not able to see the face of, of the dancer, then you lose out on what they're trying to say. So the nature of the dance form has changed. So depending on where you're performing now, we have these group choreographies and a lot of movement and, you know, uh, 
massive use of spaces, lots of leaps and jumps and, you know, athleticism. That was not a part of the original dance form, which was done in small courtyards for Lord. You know, it was a very... Uh, so it's it's basically how... Uh, what, what is the connection be- between something that is very felt inside you and how you express it outside it totally depends on who your audience is where you're performing what the space is like what the context of the performance is so yeah of course um there have been western influences um of ballet of you know just general group performances and a lot of abstract thoughts also coming into into the dance form so, and it's constantly evolving then there are also collaborations that are done. Um, there's lots of collaborations that have been done between flamenco and Kathak, which is the North Indian dance. And if you see their histories, maybe they coincide. Uh, they both started with this group of gypsies, you know, perhaps in India, who traveled uh, and came to Europe. And so you you see similarities in the, those dance forms as well, where there's a lot of footwork and play with rhythm. That, that's so, right. Yeah. So there, I mean, there were travelers in in India, just like there are travelers in Europe. Yeah, there've there've been travelers everywhere in the world, I guess. Gypsies everywhere. Mm. Um, and we have uh, uh, tribes even today in India uh, that are travelers. It's hard to do that in today's day and age, but uh, I mean, that's how they go by. They're living off the grid. Off the grid. <laughs> So I understand you have some things coming up. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about your your future plans with the with the uh, the forum, with your classes, with your uh, upcoming performances, and things uh, about creating. Yes. So um, about the upcoming upcoming performances, uh, the festival that um, uh, Museum of Dance is organizing in February at the Center for Contemporary Arts (CCA) in Santa Fe. Um, this is February 2024, correct? This this February 2024. And I think I'm slated to perform on the 16th of uh, February. My plan is to offer a workshop in the daytime um, at the same venue where I can do, um, I'm still thinking about it and uh, working on it, but I would probably, um, it might, it, it what it seems like is it would be like an illustrated lecture or a lecture demonstration and offer a little bit of, uh, you know, class, um, teach a little bit of the style to whoever's interested. That would be the morning session. And in the evening, I'll do a full one-hour performance. Um, and I plan to revisit um, some of some traditional pieces for this performance. And one of the pieces, um, I think, will be a 30-minute piece which is the considered the central piece of our repertoire so in a in a traditional solo performance it goes on for at least an hour and a half and uh, it's a it's a repertoire which starts with like different formats different compositions you start um, there's a first half and a second half and in the center is the the central piece which is called a varnam which is a very challenging piece because not only because it's long but because it uh, brings in both aspects of the dance form. So the Indian dance forms have basically these two main aspects. One is the abstract dance form, what we call pure dance, which has no meaning. It 
basically showcases the form, the structure of the dance form, the beauty and aesthetics, the geometry of the body in space. Um, so it has that aspect, which we call the pure dance aspect, as well as the narrative aspect, the interpretative dance, the storytelling aspect. So it fuses both of those. And it's a challenging piece, which has like a running theme for 30, 35 minutes. And uh, it's something that you need to master. So um, I, I'm thinking of revisiting one of my favorite Varnams in Ragam Behag for this um, for this evening and maybe one or two other pieces. Um, I'm still working on my on my uh, evening for that. So that's for the performance uh, that's coming up and uh, and for classes. Yes, I I need to start doing some promotions and uh, fix a time for that. I've just been a uh, little occupied. So I need to get to that. And soon I'll make announcements. So overall, with the dance form itself, where, where do you see it going within the next five to 10 years? Um, it's, it's a, my dance form has, is probably one of the most popular dance forms, not just in India, but around the world that's practiced by the Indian diaspora. And I see it uh, really uh, going places. It's becoming... It's evolving more with new practitioners. There's a lot of new blood, very dedicated dancers all across the globe who are bringing new elements, um, new energy to the dance form. Also reviving older concepts and older ideas, talking about there's a lot of research that is also going, uh, coming from artists now. And they're bringing back histories of how it was practiced in the colonial times and kind of recreating that magic uh, in contemporary times. So um, I see a really, um, really interesting future for this dance form. Also because finally we are talking about the problem, the problematic aspects of the history of this form as well. And trying to uh, bring those people whose voices were never heard before now onto the scene. So I see a good future. I see a very positive uh, future, which is looking more at equity and, uh, you know, inclusion in the future. Well, Sneha, you've given us a really great education about, you know, part of the history of uh, of India, which is vast. You just, I just scratched the surface here. Uh, there are things that uh, we in America do not know unless we are nerdy kinds of people who read lots and lots of books. So I, I truly appreciate that. And I had no idea that the art form has such a connection to the colonial period of uh, of India, that there was a, an intersection there, that, that, that these things actually affected one another. So I truly appreciate you going through the details of uh, the development of this dance and wish we... Uh, I'm sure you could do a five, six, seven-hour lecture on this, and we still would not be able to get to the bottom of everything. But uh, you've been very, very generous. Uh, well, thank you. I, I I wrote a PhD on on this, and I still I feel I only scratched the surface and know practically nothing. There's so much more to go into, and the more I see other artists and other you know scholars writing, talking, performing about it, it just inspires me more and more to learn more. Well, you certainly have inspired me. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for being here. And uh, I'm looking forward to your performances with the uh, festival. 
and uh, wishing you all the good luck with that as well. So I, I truly appreciate you, uh, Sneha, Dr. Carter. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. ModPod, the International Amusement Dance Podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other discerning streaming services. Remember to subscribe and rate us. Give us five stars because we are fabulous. The International Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.